Chapter Eleven of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evans. Chapter Eleven, Gravity Out of Bed. It is probable that Sir Archibald Roylance did not altogether believe Dixon's tale. It may be that he considered him an agreeable romancer, or a little mad, or no more than a relief to the tedium of a wet Sunday morning. But his incredulity did not survive one glance at Saskia as she stood in that bleak drawing-room among Victorian watercolours and faded chintzes. The young man's boyishness deserted him. He stopped short in his tracks, and made a profound and awkward bow. "'I am at your service, mademoiselle,' he said, amazed at himself. The words seemed to have come out of a confused memory of plays and novels. She inclined her head, a little on one side, and looked towards Dixon. "'Sir Archibald's going to do his best for us,' said that squire of dames. "'I was telling him that we'd had our breakfast.' "'Let's get out of this sepulchre,' said their host, who was recovering himself. "'There's a roasting fire in my den. Of course you'll have something to eat, hot coffee, anyway. I've trained my cook to make coffee like a Frenchwoman. The housekeeper will take charge of you, if you want to tidy up, and you must excuse our ramshackle ways, please. I don't believe there's ever been a lady in this house before, you know.' He led her to the smoking-room, and ensconced her in the great chair by the fire. Smilingly she refused a series of offers which ranged from a sheepskin mantle which he had got in the Pamiers, and which he thought might fit her, to hot whisky and water as a specific against a chill. But she accepted a pair of slippers, and deftly kicked off the brogues provided by Mrs. Moran. Also, while Dixton started rapaciously on a second breakfast, she allowed him to pour her out a cup of coffee. "'You are a soldier?' she asked. Two years infantry, 5th Battalion, Lennox Highlanders, and then Flying Corps. Top hole time I had, too, till the day before the armistice, when my luck gave out and I took a nasty toss. Consequently, I'm not as fast on my legs now as I'd like to be.' "'You were a friend of Captain Kennedy?' "'His oldest. We were at the same private school, and he was at Matutas, and we were never much separated till he went abroad to cram for the diplomatic, and I started east to shoot things.' then I would tell you what I told Captain Kennedy." Saskia, looking into the heart of the Peats, began the story of which we have already heard a version, but she told it differently, for she was telling it to one who more or less belonged to her own world. She mentioned names at which the other nodded. She spoke of a certain Paul Abreshkov. "'I heard of him at Bokhara in 1912,' said Sir Archie, and his face grew solemn. Sometimes she lapsed into French and her hearer's brow wrinkled, but he appeared to follow. When she had finished, he drew a long breath. "'My aunt! What a time you've been through! I've seen pluck in my day, but yours! It's not thinkable! Do you mind if I ask you a question, Princess? Bolshevism we know all about, and I admit Trotsky and his friends are a pretty effective push. But how on earth have they got a world-wide graft going in the time, so that they can stretch their net to an out-of-the-way spot like this?' It looks as though they have struck a Napoleon somewhere. "'You do not understand,' she said. "'I cannot make any one understand, except a Russian. My country has been broken to pieces, and there is no law in it. Therefore it is a nursery of crime. So would England be, or France, if you have suffered the same misfortunes. My people are not wickeder than others, but for the moment they are sick and have no strength. As for the government of the Bolsheviki, it matters little, for it will pass. 
Some parts of it may remain, but it is a government of the sick and fevered, and cannot endure in health. Lenin may be a good man. I do not think so, but I do not know. But if he were an archangel, he could not alter things. Russia is mortally sick, and therefore all evil is unchained, and the criminals have no one to check them. There is crime everywhere in the world, and the unfettered crime in Russia is so powerful that it stretches its hand to crime throughout the globe, and there is a great mobilizing everywhere of wicked men. Once you boasted that law was international, and that the police in one land worked with the police of all others. Today that is true about criminals. After a war, evil passions are loosed, and, since Russia is broken, in her they can make their headquarters. It is not Bolshevism, the theory you need fear, for that is a weak and dying thing. It is crime, which today finds its seat in my country, but is not only Russian. It has no fatherland. It is as old as human nature, and as wide as the earth. I see, said Sir Archie. Gad, here have I been vegetating and thinking that all excitement has gone out of life with the war, and sometimes even regretting that the beastly old thing was over. And all the while the world fairly humming with interest. And Loudon, too. I would like your candid opinion on yon factor, Sir Archibald, said Dixon. Can't say I ever liked him, and I've once or twice had a row with him, for he used to bring his pals to shoot over Darquata, and he didn't quite play the game by me. But I know dashed little about him, for I've been a lot away. Bit hairy about the heels, of course. Great figure at local race meetings, and used to toady old Carforth of the hunting crowd. He has a pretty big reputation as a sharp lawyer, and some of the thick-headed lairds swear by him, but Quentick never could stick him. It's quite likely he's been getting into Queer Street, for he was always speculating in horse-flesh, and I fancy he plunged a bit on the turf. But I can't think how he got mixed up in this show. I'm positive Dobson's his brother. And put this business in his way. That would explain it all right. He must be running for pretty big stakes, for that kind of lad don't dabble in crime for six and eightpence. Now for the layout. You've got three men shut up in Dalquarter House, who by this time have probably escaped. One of you, what's his name, Heritage, is in the old tower, and you think that they think the Princess is still there, and will sit round the place like terriers. Sometime today the Danish brig will arrive with reinforcements, and then there will be a hefty fight. Well, the first thing to be done is to get rid of Loughton Stymie with the authorities. Princess, I am going to carry you off in my car to the Chief Constable. The second thing is for you after that to stay on here. It's a deadly place on a wet day, but it's safe enough. Saskia shook her head, and Dixon spoke for her. You'll no get her to stop here. I've done my best, but she's determined to be back at Dalquata. You see, she's expecting a friend, and besides, if there's going to be a battle, she'd like to be in it. Is that so, ma'am? Sir Archie looked helplessly around him, and the sight of the girl's face convinced him that argument would be fruitless. Anyhow, she must come with me to the chief constable. Levington's a slow bird on the wing, and I don't see myself convincing him that he must get busy unless I can produce the princess. Even then it may be a tough job, for it's Sunday, and in these parts people go to sleep till Monday morning. "'That's just what I'm trying to get at,' said Dixon. "'By all means go to the chief constable and tell him it's life or death. "'My lawyer in Glasgow, Mr. Cor, would have been stirring him up yesterday, "'and you two should complete the job. "'But what I'm feared is that he'll not be in time. 
As you say, it's the Sabbath day, and the police are terrible slow. Now any moment that brig may be here, and the trouble will start. I'm wanting to save the princess, but I'm wanting, too, to give these blackguards the roughest handling they ever got in their lives. Therefore, I say there's no time to lose. We're far or through to put up a fight, and we want every man you've got about this place to hold the fort till the police come. Sir Archibald looked upon the earnest, flushed face of Dixon with admiration. "'I'm blessed if you're not the most whole-hearted brigand I've ever struck.' "'I am not. I'm just a businessman.' "'Do you realise that you're levying a private war and breaking every law of the land?' "'Hoots,' said Dixon. "'I don't care a docker about the law. I'm for seeing this job through. What force can you produce?' "'Only cripples, I'm afraid. There's Syme, my butler.' He was a fusilier jock, and, as you saw, has lost an arm. Then McGuffock, the keeper, is a good man, but he's still got a Turkish bullet in his thigh. The chauffeur, Carfrey, was in the yeomanry and lost half a foot. And there's myself, as lame as a duck. The herds on the home farm are no good, for one's seventy, and the other is in bed with jaundice. The mains can produce four men, but they're rather a job lot. "'They'll do fine,' said Dixon heartily. "'All sodgers, and no doubt all good shots.' "'Have you plenty guns?' Sir Archie burst into uproarious laughter. "'Mr. McCunn, you're a man after my own heart. I'm under your orders. If I had a boy, I'd put him into the provision trade, for it's the place to see fighting. Yes, we've no end of guns. I advise shotguns, for they've more stopping power in a rush than a rifle, and I take it's a rough-and-tumble we're looking for.' "'Right,' said Dixon. "'I saw a bicycle in the hall. I want you to lend it me, for I must be getting back.' "'You'll take the princess and do the best you can with the chief constable?' "'And then?' "'Then you'll load up your car with your folk and come down the hill to Dalquata. "'There'll be a laddie, or maybe more than one, waiting for you on this side of the village to give your instructions. "'Take your orders from them. "'If it's a red-haired ruffian called Dougal, you'll be wise to heed what he says, for he has a grand head for battles.' Five minutes later, Dixon was pursuing a quavering course like a snipe down the avenue. He was a miserable performer on the bicycle. Not for twenty years had he bestridden one, and he did not understand such new devices as free wheels and change of gears. The mounting had been the worst part, and it had only been achieved by the help of a rockery. He had begun by cutting into two flower-beds and mishing a birch-tree by inches. But he clung on desperately, well knowing that if he fell off it would be hard to remount and at length he gained the avenue. When he passed the lodge gates he was riding fairly straight, and when he turned off the air highway to the side-road that led to Dalquata, he was more or less master of his machine. He crossed the garpa by an ancient hunch-backed bridge, observing even his absorption with the handlebars that the stream was in roaring spate. He wrestled up the further hill with aching calf-muscles, and got to the top just before his strength gave out. Then, as the road turned seaward, he had the slope with him and enjoyed some respite. It was no case for putting up his feet, for the gale was blowing hard on his right cheek, but the downward grade enabled him to keep his course with little exertion. His anxiety to get back to the scene of action was for the moment appeased, since he knew he was making as good speed as the weather allowed, so he had leisure for thought. But the mind of this preposterous being was not on the business before him. He dallied with irrelevant things, with the problems of youth and love. He was beginning to be very nervous about heritage, not as the solitary garrison of the old tower, 
but as the lover of Saskia. That everybody should be in love with her appeared to him only proper, for he had never met her like, and assumed that it did not exist. The desire of the moth for the star seemed to him a reasonable thing, since hopeless loyalty and unrequited passion were the eternal stock-in-trade of romance. He wished he were twenty-five himself, to have the chance of indulging in such sentimentality for such a lady. But Heritage was not like him, and would never be content with a romantic folly. He had been in love with her for two years, a long time. He spoke about wanting to die for her, which was a flight beyond Dixon himself. "'I doubt it will be what they call a grand passion,' he reflected with reverence. But it was hopeless. He saw quite clearly that it was hopeless. Why, he could not have explained, for Dixon's instincts were subtler than his intelligence. He recognised that the two belonged to different circles of being, which nowhere intersected. That mysterious lady, whose eyes had looked through life to the other side, was no mate for the poet. His faithful soul was agitated, for he had developed for heritage a sincere affection. It would break his heart, poor man. There was he holding the fort alone, and cheering himself with delightful fancies about one remoter than the moon. Dixon wanted happy endings, and here there was no hope of such. He hated to admit that life could be crooked, but the optimist in him was now fairly dashed. Sir Archie might be the fortunate man, for of course he would soon be in love with her, if he were not so already. Dixon, like all his class, had a profound regard for the country gentry. The business Scot does not usually revere wealth, though he may pursue it earnestly, nor does he specially admire rank in the common sense. But for ancient race he has respect in his bones, though it may happen that in public he denies it, and the laird has for him a secular association with good family. Sir Archie might do. He was young, good-looking, obviously gallant. But no, he was not quite right, either, just a trifle too light in weight, too boyish and callow. The princess must have youth, but it should be mighty youth, the youth of a Napoleon or a Caesar. He reflected that the great Montrose, for whom he had a special veneration, might have filled the bill. Or young Harry, with his beaver up, or Claverhouse in the picture, with the flush of temper on his cheek. The meditations of the matchmaking Dixon came to an abrupt end. He had been riding negligently, his head bent against the wind, and his eyes vaguely fixed on the wet hill-gravel of the road. Of his immediate environs he was pretty well unconscious. Suddenly he was aware of figures on each side of him who advanced menacingly. Stung to activity, he attempted to increase his pace, which was already good, for the road at this point descended steeply. Then, before he could prevent it, a stick was thrust into his front wheel, and the next second he was describing a curve through the air. His head took the ground, he felt a spasm of blinding pain, and then a sense of horrible suffocation before his wits left him. "'Are ye sure it's the richt man, Nicky?' said a voice which he did not hear. "'Sure. It's the Dleska body Dobson told us to look for yesterday. It's a pund note up between us for this job. We'll tie him up in the wood till we've time to attend to him.' "'Is he bad?' "'Ah, oh, does not matter,' said the one called Eki. He'll be dead anyway long before the morn. Mrs. Moran, all forenoon, was in a state of unsabbatical disquiet. After she had seen Saskia and Dixon start, 
she finished her housewifely duties, took Cousin Eugenie her breakfast, and made preparation for the midday dinner. The invalid in the bed in the parlour was not a repaying subject. Cousin Eugenie belonged to that type of elderly women, who, having been spoiled in youth, find the rest of life fall far short of their expectations. Her voice had acquired a perpetual wail, and the corners of what had once been a pretty mouth drooped in an eternal peevishness. She found herself in a morass of misery and shabby discomfort, but had her days continued in an even tenor, she would still have lamented. "'A dingy body,' was Mrs. Moran's comment, but she laboured in kindness. Unhappily they had no common language, and it was only by signs that the hostess could discover her wants and show her good will. She fed her and bathed her face, saw to the fire, and left her to sleep. "'I'm boiling a hen to make broth for your dinner, ma'am. Try and get a bit sleep now.' The purport of the advice was clear, and Cousin Eugenie turned obediently on her pillow. It was Mrs. Moran's custom of a Sunday to spend the morning in devout meditation. Some years before she had given up tramping the five miles to Kirk, on the ground that having been a regular attendant for fifty years, she had got all the good out of it that was probable. Instead, she read slowly aloud to herself the sermon printed in a certain religious weekly which reached her every Saturday, and concluded with a chapter or two of the Bible. But to-day something had gone wrong with her mind. She could not follow the thread of the Reverend Dr. McMichael's discourse. She could not fix her attention on the wanderings and misdeeds of Israel as recorded in the book of Exodus. She must always be getting up to look at the pot on the fire, or to open the back door and study the weather. For a little she fought against her unrest, and then she gave up the attempt at concentration. She took the big pot off the fire and allowed it to simmer, and presently she fetched her boots and umbrella and kilted her petticoats. "'I've been on the wear o'er a breath o' colour air,' she decided. The wind was blowing great guns, but there was only the thinnest sprinkle of rain. Sitting on the hen-house roof and munching a raw turnip was a figure which she recognised as the smallest of the diehards. Between bites he was singing dolefully to the tune of Annie Laurie, one of the ditties of his quondam Sunday school. The bourgeois a bunny to roo ra but the workers o' the world will gar them a look blue, will gar them a look blue and ruin them in the sea, and for body Annie Laurie I'll lay me down and dee. Lot laddie, she cried, that's cold food for the stomach. Come indoors about midday and I'll gee a plate of broth. The die-hard saluted and continued on the turnip. She took the Ochtenlochten road across the Garple Bridge, for that was the best road to the mains, and by it Dixon and the others might be returning. Her equanimity at all seasons was like a Turk's, and she would not have admitted that anything mortal had power to upset her or excite her. Nevertheless, it was a fast-beating heart that she now bore beneath her Sunday jacket. Great events, she felt, were on the eve of happening, and of them she was a part. Dixon's anxiety was hers to bring things to a business-like conclusion. The honour of hunting tower was at stake, and of the old Kennedys. She was carrying out Mr. Quentin's commands, the dead boy who used to clamour for her treacle scones. And there was more than duty in it, for youth was not dead in her heart, and adventure had still power to quicken it. Mrs. Moran walked well, 
with the steady long paces of the Scots countrywoman. She left the Ochenlochen road and took the side path along the tableland to the mains. But for the surge of the gale and the far-borne boom of the furious sea, there was little noise. Not a bird cried in the uneasy air. With the wind behind her, Mrs. Moran breasted the ascent till she had on her right the moorland running south to the Lochan Valley, and on her left Garple chafing in its deep-forested gorges. Her eyes were quick, and she noted with interest a weasel creeping from a fern-clad cairn. A little way on she passed an old ewe in difficulties and assisted it to rise. "'But for me, my woman, he'd have been brexier nicht,' she told it as it departed bleating. Then she realised that she had come a certain distance. "'Hush! I'm on me getting back, or the hen'll be spoiled,' she cried, and was on the verge of turning. But something caught her eye a hundred yards further on the road. It was something which moved with the wind like a wounded bird, fluttering from the roadside to a puddle, and then back to the rushes. She advanced to it, missed it, and caught it. It was an old, dingy, green felt hat, and she recognised it as Dixon's. Mrs. Moran's brain, after a second of confusion, worked fast and clearly. She examined the road and saw that a little way on the gravel had been violently agitated. She detected several prints of hobnailed boots. There were prints, too, on a patch of peat on the south side behind a tall bank of sods. "'That's where they were hiding,' she concluded. Then she explored on the other side in a thicket of hazels and wild raspberries, and presently her perseverance was rewarded. The scrub was all crushed and pressed, as if several persons had been forcing a passage. In a hollow was a gleam of something white. She moved towards it with a quaking heart, and was relieved to find that it was only a new and expensive bicycle, with the front wheel badly buckled. Mrs. Moran delayed no longer. If she had walked well on her out-journey, she beat all records on the return. Sometimes she would run till her breath failed, then she would slow down till anxiety once more quickened her pace. To her joy, on the Dalquarter side of the Garple Bridge, she observed the figure of a die-hard. Breathless, flushed, with her bonnet awry and her umbrella held like a scimitar, she seized on the boy. "'All oh, for doings! They grip it near McCann up the mains road just afore the second milestone, and fallen into the old bucht. I found his hat, and a bicycle's lying broken in the wood. Haste ye, man, and get the rest, and away and seek him. It'll be the tinkers for the dean. I'd gang myself, but my legs are all old.' Oh, laddie, didn't stop to spare questions. They'll have him murdered or away to sea. And maybe the lady was with him, and they've got them both. Ways me, ways me. The diehard, who was wee Jakey, did not delay. His eyes had filled with tears at her news, which we know to have been his habit. When Mrs. Moran, after indulging in a moment of barbaric keening, looked back the road she had come, she saw a small figure trotting up the hill like a terrier who had been left behind. As he trotted, he wept bitterly. Jakey was getting dangerous. End of chapter 11